Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. We are finally, finally finishing Bleak House by Charles Dickens this week. This series started late, it's ended late, it's been a whole few months of this year, y'all. It's been a big staple of 2021 so far, and I'm super grateful, though, for all of you sticking in with me and with the show as we continue to go over and review this magnificent book. I think I don't want to make any grandiose claims here, but I think this is my favorite Dickens book that I've ever read. It is so uh, stunning, and it's so complex, and it's so multi-layered, and there's so many things to love about it. Uh, Definitely one of those things, though, is how long it takes you to really get into it and understand it. So our episodes this week, or for the next week and a half, rather, are going to look like we've got serials 17 and 18, obviously, today. Then on Thursday, we'll have serials 19 and 20. So I've combined the informal and the formal episodes into these since the last few serials are shorter than the others. So we'll be doing quotes, we'll be doing my quips in <laughs> definitely this week, this week's episode for sure. And then also on Thursday, we'll be having some quotes and quips along with a more formal plot and analysis overview type situation. And then next week, we're going to be doing a wrap-up episode on Bleak House. And for that, we'll be going over a couple of my questions overarching about this book, about some of the characters, maybe. We'll be doing some fun facts as well about Bleak House, just to kind of send it off since it has been such a staple this year. And we've done oh so many episodes about it. It doesn't seem right just to leave it with the last serial It's kind of a bittersweet ending. I mean, there are so many moving parts that, of course, it's bittersweet, but I didn't want to just finish the book and finish my little talks about the book and not end it and the series for once and for all. In terms of what's next on the show, we're going to be definitely reviewing the Hollow Trilogy. I read and prepared all that episode and all the works for that episode a while ago, so that's just waiting for Bleak House to finish before we launch that. Also, we always tend to go and announce horrifying classics near September 1st, first week of September, which of course is this week, so we will be doing a teaser for horrifying classics 2021 lightning strike. (laughs) Uh, in in the next week here, and that will be super exciting. I just finished the pre-prep for that, so that's really... I'm so excited, you all. It's going to be so great. I've got a huge, insane lineup of books this year, and I'm excited every year, of course, but I'm particularly excited for this year because it is uh, kind of tying in. I don't want to give too much away, but it ties in with themes that are very near and dear to the show's heart, and we have some authors that are coming back a little bit, so um, I'm really excited to kind of 
do a little twist on horrifying classics but also still do something that's really true to the show and the books that we tend to review and get a lot of success on so super excited there um and you can look forward to that teaser probably like a five six minute teaser coming up this week all right let's just begin this is so exciting serial 17 chapter 54 springing a mine so we start out this chapter with mr bucket of course we've been getting a lot of him lately and i think necessarily so right he's the face of the tolking horn murder scene and he has a lot to do with a bunch of different threads starting out in this book not to mention especially i would say the lady deadlock thread that has sort of predominated a lot of the second two-thirds of the book so far and so he rises, he's at the Deadlock's residence, and he sends directly for Sir Leicester Deadlock, and he sends him directly to the library after waking up. Essentially, Bucket is a man who likes pomp and circumstance. He's a man who's very social and very amicable in that regard. He really appeals to people who are social and people who like to do small talk for example so he does this long long like several pages working up to tell sir Leicester deadlock who murdered mr tolkinghorn and in particular which lady murdered mr tolkinghorn and how this lady has a connection to of course lady deadlock in the midst of Mr. Bucket getting to the point, however, we have some visitors, of course. Mr. Smallweed in his little chair, being carried in by Mercury's probably. Mrs. Snagsby, the law stationer's wife who is known for her jealousy. Mr. and Mrs. Chadband, formerly just Rachel, the she's sort of a maid or a housekeeper type figure who essentially raised Esther for a time after her aunt dies, and Mr. Chadband is a minister that Mrs. Snagsby is a devote follower of, and they all arrive into the room. Smallweed, they each have, by the way, different agendas. Smallweed wants to be paid for the letters that are helping out Mr. Bucket in his investigation. These are letters that were found in Mr. Tolkinghorn's quarters, and they were procured by Smallweed through means that we've already heavily gone through in the novel. Essentially, he wants to be paid again for the letters. Mr. Chadband and Mrs. Chadband are there because Rachel is proof that they know essentially Lady Deadlock's daughter. They're in on the secret, so to speak. And Mrs. Snagsby is there for her own reasons. She still has this presumption that Joe, which is the unfortunate lad who died in the last serial, is Mr. Snagsby's son for some reason. It's essentially a delusion. Everyone knows it. And we'll see how that resolves very, very soon. I have a quote on page 688. Quote, So it is, and such is life. The cats away, and the mice they play. The frost breaks up, and the water runs. Now with regard to the party to be apprehended, unquote. So this is Mr. Bucket talking to Mr. Leicester, Sir Leicester Deadlock. 
And what I liked about this quote is it's kind of irreverent and it kind of shows Mr. Bucket's style of speaking and, st and style of evading the point at hand. He does eventually get to it, but he, again, has this very, like, whimsical style and he's a little bit spontaneous, I feel, in the way that he prevents, presents himself. And I thought this quote, again, really got to the heart. It's almost similar to Skimple in some ways, which I think is a really interesting comparison, a character comparison to make between Bucket and Skimple and how idealistic they both are in some ways. And we talked last time about the way that Mr. Bucket looks at his wife even and the way that, and this is definitely explained more so in these these particular chapters here, but there's just the way that Bucket picks up on things is sort of idealistic and fanciful in some ways and of course is part of his training as a detective and others. So he's just uh, just as blown up as any of the characters in Bleak House and I think that this particular way of speaking is one way that Dickens brings that quality out. I don't know if you've ever had mint tea with a little bit of milk. I use nut milk usually and then some honey. It's a recipe from the hollow that I particularly have started to enjoy when I'm recording these podcasts because my voice can get, you know, up and down. It goes through many stages sometimes while I'm recording. Sometimes I just randomly lose it. Sometimes I'm really into it and my voice gets all fired up and sometimes I'm a little more soft-spoken just a little podcasting insight for you while we're <laughs> we're uh waiting for our next part here I've really enjoyed the series if you all can't tell it's been a real pleasure to get to review and look at this series and so I hope you've all enjoyed it I hope you enjoyed the little quips and asides that we do. It's been, again, a real pleasure. Alright, so let's get back on topic here. So, Mademoiselle Hortense also arrives, and this is after the guests leave and everything, and they've kind of said their entreaties and Mr. Bucket has taken them in tow. Mademoiselle Hortense comes, apparently came, as a lodger to Mr. and Mrs. Bucket right after, like the, the day after Tolkienhorn was murdered. And apparently Bucket tells the anecdote that he immediately, upon seeing Mademoiselle Hortense, immediately suspects her for the murder. And so he enlists Mrs. Bucket to essentially keep her prisoner without her knowing, is similar to the quote in the book, and to watch Mademoiselle Hortense, and to watch specifically for signs that Mademoiselle Hortense is covering something up, is involving herself in some way in the murder. And so they spend, you know, the next week, week and a half together, whatever it is, however long it is. And Mrs. Bucket is very, very observant. She observes, for example, Mademoiselle Hortense mailing the several dozen letters that Mr. Bucket has gotten since the murder um, that say Lady Deadlock on them. The last most recent one says Lady Deadlock murder us on it. And of course, you know, 
Mr. Bucket is like, I know this stationery, obviously, because my wife helped you get it, <laughs> and my wife watched you send these and write them. And she also, after waiting some time, procures the murder weapon, where they go to tea in a near a place where there's water, and Mademoiselle Hortense gets up, saying, oh, I need to use the restroom, I need to refresh myself, and she's gone for quite some time, and then she comes back, and she's a little out of breath, and they go back and search the premises, and they find the murder weapon there tossed into the water, which is very convenient. So, <laughs> um, Mrs. Bucket essentially is the star of the show here, which explains some of why Mr. Bucket was keeping such a close eye on her when they were at the funeral, because Mr. Bucket was also looking at Mademoiselle Hortense for her reaction, etc. So there's a lot there, and I find it really cool that Miss Bucket, Mrs. Bucket was kind of the instrument in all of this. Page 695, I'll read a little bit of the last bit of this chapter, and we'll start on page 694 for this. Quote, Sir Leicester left alone, remains in the same attitude as though he were still listening, and his attention were still occupied. At length, he gazes around the empty room, and finding it deserted, rises unsteadily to his feet, pushes back his chair, and walks a few steps, supporting himself by the table. Then he stops and, with more of those inarticulate sounds, lifts up his eyes and seems to stare at something. Heaven knows what he sees. The green, green woods of Chesney Wald, the noble house, the pictures of his forefathers, strangers defacing them, officers of police coarsely handling his most precious heirlooms, thousands of fingers pointing at him, thousands of faces sneering at him. But if such shadows flit before him to his bewilderment, there is one other shadow which he can name with something like distinctness even yet, and to which alone he addresses his tearing of his white hair and his extended arms." Unquote. I was so devastated when I read that, and it speaks especially to the melancholy tone of the last few serials. I'll talk in a bit about the tone of Dickinson's tone and then as well of the mood of the last few serials and it's so fascinating and I think it marks such a departure from the earlier sections of the book which are kind of humdrum at times and slow going at times. If you hear little sounds in the background that's my cat <laughs> and yeah, I found this departure to be really interesting. I read these last hundred pages so much more quickly than I normally would have given the scope of this kind of book and I think that was definitely in part due to this wonderful shift in mood in the latter serials of the book, the last four serials. Chapter 55, Flight. So Mrs. Bagnet, we left her last time, leaving away and trying to find George, George's mother, who we have heard nothing so we know about, and she realized when George ran into Mrs. Rouncewell at Tolkinghorns, essentially when George was suddenly liable for the money but gave Tolkienhorn the handwriting sample in order to get out of it and extend his loan 
for his shooting gallery, that whole scenario, he saw Mrs. Rouncewell at Tolkien Horns. And when he recounted that to Mrs. Bagnet later, he said, oh, there was a woman who looked so strikingly like my mother. There was a little encounter scene there, which I found really remarkable. And I think I did note it. I hope I did. Um, because it's a really remarkable scene. And Mrs. Bagnet then realized that Mrs. Rouncewell wasn't only a woman who looked like George's mother, she is George's mother. <laughs> so she goes and finds and starts to bring back Mrs. Rouncewell from Chesney Walls. So essentially we get the backstory of this whole family situation. George apparently disowned himself on his family's behalf because he was so ashamed of himself. He wasn't on page 701, he says he is, quote, not self-made like his brother, but self-unmade, unquote, which I found to be a really apt description of how he feels about himself and sort of his call to loyalty and morality and wanting to do his family justice. And so all those things are good, but taken to the extreme, of course, it's ostracized him from his family and he hasn't seen them for years. They have actually considered him dead. Uh, I think at the beginning, I was remembering in the beginning of the book, uh, Mrs. Rouncewell's description of how her young son was a zealous soldier and she thought he was dead or she thought that she hadn't heard from him in several, several years. So it's a really tragic story in some ways that this kind of loyalty and steadfastness ended up with such a terrible result. So George and his mother reconcile, he's still in prison of course, and after that reconciliation George is much softer on the issues of, you know, getting himself out of prison, and Mrs. Rouncewell retires to the Deadlock's house in London. She speaks with Lady Deadlock almost immediately upon her coming back to the house, and I have a, page, a quote on page 705 for that as well. The old housekeeper leaves her with a letter in her hand. This is Lady Dedlock. In truth, she is not a hard lady naturally, and the time has been when the sight of the venerable figure suing to her with such strong earnestness would have removed her to great compassion. But so long accustomed to suppress emotion and keep down reality, so long schooled for her own purposes in that destructive school which shuts up the natural feelings of the heart like flies in amber and spreads one uniform and dreary gloss over the good and bad, the feeling and the unfeeling, the sensible and the senseless. She had subdued even her wonder until now. She opens the letter. Spread out upon the paper is a printed account of the discovery of the body as it lay face downward on the floor, shot through the heart, and underneath is written her own name with the word murderess attached. Unquote. So we have this, you know, devastating passage, and the reason why I wanted to highlight it is because it's one of the few glimpses into Lady Dedlock's psyche and her emotional state at this time that... It, it really does stand out in my mind in that way. And we have this just horrible undertaking of, you know, Lady Dedlock has destroyed her emotional capacity under years of training. And in this section, there's also a quote that says something along the lines of, 
Miss or Lady Dedlock is moved, but she has the same countenance as she has always had in these recent years, and it, that's just so devastating, isn't it? That she is under such emotional strain and stress and turmoil, and she can't resolve any of that. She's just been pent up in it and pent up around it for so long. Guppy, right after she receives this letter, visits Lady Deadlock and he essentially tells her of the likelihood that the secret that, you know, he was visiting her about before in previous serials is probably out based on the visitors that were at her residence before this with Sir Leicester Deadlock and Mr. Bucket. And he says of the likelihood that Smallweed has these letters that Guppy and Weevil, or rather Jobling, were looking for and were going to present to her and, you know, really trace back this connection that she had to Nemo, aka Captain Hawden. So, Guppy essentially spills the beans. He thinks that he's helping out. He thinks that he's being faithful to Esther, the last promise that he made to Esther, which is that he wouldn't meddle in this, these affairs anymore. But ironically, he leads to Lady Deadlock's downfall. And I was thinking about the irony there of, of course, not only everything that we as readers know up until this point that these characters don't know. And I think to really understand the dramatic irony there, you have to be very clear on which threads of the novel have connected at this point and which haven't. And there are a couple that really haven't connected. Um, and a couple that are definitely most recently connected. So it's, yeah, that's one fascinating point about this novel is that in order to really understand the literary devices that are going on here, you have to understand the connections between threads of the narrative, which I think is pretty brilliant. But I found it really ironic in a different sense, that Mrs. Rouncewell, who's been taking care of the Deadlock estate and the Deadlock family for so long and is kind of a symbol of their honor and their fortitude, is the one of the keys to Lady Deadlock's downfall, right? And really one of the catalyzers of her early demise, spoiler alert, and then, of course, Guppy, who is this, you know, complete phony, essentially. He's, you know, kind of, he's painted as this almost nouveau rich, like, Gatsby, Nick kind of figure. And he's so full of himself in a lot of ways, and his mother is very full of him. And so it's, it's a mess. He's a mess all around. And especially his engagement or prior engagement with Esther is hilarious to me and I think is hilarious to a lot of people because they're so ill-matched in that regard. Guppy is way, way too full of himself and his future prospects to, uh, to win Esther as his bride, so to speak. So Guppy leads, as Mrs. Rouncewell also does, to Lady Deadlock's eventual flight, as this chapter is called. 
Lady Deadlock, essentially after Guppy visits, and she has this letter, and she's in a flurry, and this emotional exhaustion is getting to her, and she thinks that she must have murdered Tolkienhorn, right? She must be the culprit. This is kind of like Macbeth madness moment. You know at the end of Macbeth when he sees all these ghosts and he's like, you know, in this torment, emotional torment and moral torment. I think it's a similar moment for Lady Deadlock and it's a beautiful moment but it's a macabre moment and it's so, so devastating as this whole serial is really. And Lady Deadlock leaves. She flees. Chapter 56, Pursuit. In this chapter, I wanted to read page 709 to start. It's one of the last bird's eye view chapters that we get in this book. And definitely one of the last that's consistent in mood. So here it is, quote, Impassive as behoves its high breeding, the deadlock townhouse stares at the other houses in the street of dismal grandeur and gives no outward sign of anything going wrong within. Carriages rattle, doors are battered at, and the world exchanges calls. Ancient charmers with skeleton throats and peachy cheeks that have rather a rather ghastly bloom upon them seen by daylight, which indeed these fascinating creatures look like death and the lady fused together, dazzle the eyes of men. Forth from the frigid muse come easily swinging carriages guided by page 710, short-legged coachmen in flaxen wigs deep sunk into downy hammercloths, and up behind mount luscious mercuries, bearing sticks of state and wearing cocked hats broadwise, a spectacle for the angels, unquote. And again, you know, I love these aerial view chapter heads because they give you just kind of it's it's again overwrought overdrawn as so much of this book is and it's overly decorative and it matches the deadlocks and the character and the whole I think even the character of the setting so well and it's again just this kind of perfect like overly dramatized embodiment of what we're dealing with here in terms of this actual place so, Volumnia Deadlock, I did not realize that she was going to be such a staple in these last few chapters, let me tell you. Volumnia finds Sir uh, Leicester Deadlock on the floor in the library. He's kind of collapsed in this, like, fit of devastation, and he's fine. He's very ill still, but he ends up being very comforted by the fact that Mrs. Rouncewell is there in London. That was kind of a very serendipitous event for both of them. And he finds the letter that Lady Deadlock leaves him at the end of the last chapter, and he sends for Bucket immediately, tasking him with finding Lady Deadlock. Bucket then goes and, of course, does some detective work. He goes through her chambers and searches and finds none other than Esther's handkerchief. On page 716, here's a really interesting passage that's very dense, actually. And I wanted to read it because this is the kind of mood that we're starting to move towards in these latter chapters of the book. Page 716, quote, Where is she? Living or dead, where is she? If, as he folds the handkerchief and carefully puts it up, 
it were able, with an enchanted power, to bring before him the place where she found it, and the night landscape near the college cottage where it covered the little child. Would he descry her there? On the waste, where the brick kilns are burning with a pale blue fair, where the straw roofs of the wretched huts in which the bricks are made are being scattered by the wind, where the clay and water are hard frozen, and the mill in which the gaunt blind horse goes round all day, looks like an instrument of human torture. Traversing this deserted, blighted spot, there is a lonely figure with a sad world to itself, pelted by the snow and driven by the wind, and cast out, it would seem, from all companionship. It is the figure of a woman, too, but it is miserably dressed, and no such clothes ever came through the hall and out at the great door of the Deadlock Mansion." And it's funny how these quotes get easier and easier for me to kind of piece together and understand and compartmentalize the more I read them, and I think if there's ever a quote like that, like this one was for me in the text, reading it aloud is a good help reading tip for you there. So yeah, this kind of bleak, you know, no pun intended, mood, and this kind of like puzzling of Bucket being this key, essentially, in this moving game of all these pieces. And all the pieces are starting to fit together in some very unprecedented, in my opinion, ways. Some of them are, again, like very clear, but some of them aren't. At the end of this chapter, Bucket goes to find Esther, and he finds her indeed, and she agrees to go with him. Serial 18, Esther's Narrative. And this is chapter 57. So Esther was evidently roused from sleep, which is why it took her a while to go downstairs to meet Bucket. Um, and they set off right away in the snow, and it's, it's snowing. It's really bleak. Again, no pun intended. It's really bleak out there. Um, they end up giving Lady Deadlock's description to the authorities. And they're sort of going around all the dives and just meeting with people, asking around, okay, where is this woman? Do we have any information on what direction she was going even? Um, so there's just a lot of like preliminary sweeping that needs to happen. And Bucket is very on top of it. In that respect and they end up going through just all of these insane journeys to get to this area and I love this section actually I found it to be really like Spannung would be the German word like kind of tightly wound like almost nerve-wracking in some ways but like a good in a good an, I mean, I'm not sure, like, if the German would be in a good way, but <laughs> definitely this would. Um, so, page 719, we've got another quote. Quote, I was far from sure that I was not in a dream. We rattled with great 720 rapidity through such a labyrinth of streets that I soon lost all idea where we were, except that we had crossed and recrossed the river and still seemed to be traversing a low-lying, waterside, dense neighborhood of narrow thoroughfares, checkered by docks and basins, High piles of warehouses, swing bridges, and masts of ships. Unquote. So we have this really interesting set of descriptions coming from Esther, and I think she really turns up her narrative with, in terms of the, the descriptions at least. I know I've pulled a couple other 
descriptions of hers, like her description of Chesney Wald earlier in the book, for example. And I really like her perspective on things, especially through this chase, and she's just so exhausted, especially later in this chase, so it's interesting to hear all of this directly from her as well, and not, for example, from Bucket, who of course is going to have a very different perspective from her. This chase ends up leading them first to Bleak House, and Bucket on the way tells essentially the Joe story because we know by now that Mr. Bucket pulled Joe out of Bleak House when he was sick and starting to recover there. Apparently, Bucket was trying to just put an end to this little Lady Deadlock affair, quote-unquote, kind of story. Apparently, Joe had too big a mouth for Bucket's comfort level, and so he pays Skimpole a bribe in order for Skimpole to tell Bucket where Joe was, which as we know, like, Skimpole would have done that without the bribe because he didn't like them taking Joe in as it was, so the fact that he got paid and <laughs> he was, you know, of course, getting rid of this kid that he didn't like, um, yeah, that was a double win for him. And Bucket kind of has this interesting aside about Skimpole that if he's loose with one thing, then he's going to be loose with everything. And he kind of has these interesting theses about Skimpole that I found to be really telling. Like, maybe Skimpole isn't as naive, etc. as he has purported to be this whole time. Maybe he just wants to remove the blame of his essentially lack of morality from himself, and I found that to be a really compelling analysis of Skimpole. So back to the journey, they, meaning Bucket and Esther, find Liz, who is the brickmaker's wife, or one of the brickmaker's wives, and two of the brickmakers, so Jenny and Liz's husbands, at home. And Jenny is not there, and they deduce that she has fled to London, and that Lady Deadlock was also there. One of the brickmakers has Lady Deadlock's watch on him, and so it's surmised by Bucket loosely that Lady Deadlock essentially gave him the watch to allow Jenny to flee to London with her. On the way out, they're going again through this tumultuous weather, all this snow, all this sleet, ice, and they're in carriages, and they keep having to change out these carriages. On the way back, essentially, to London, they lose the trail, and they end up stopping at an inn for a time. Chapter 58, A Wintry Day and Night this is maybe my favorite chapter opening up until this point. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but go to chapter 58, read the top of the chapter. It's so beautiful. You will not be sad to read that again or read it for the first time if you are a little behind from what we're moving forward on. Let's move to page 736, though, and to me, this part mar marks the beginning of the end of the book, and I, you know, was feeling like, okay, we're drawing towards the end a little bit, but this section, I literally thought I was like, this is the beginning of the end. And this is a conversation between George and Mrs. Rouncewell. 
George. Come, come, you alarm yourself with old story fears, mother. No, I don't, my dear. No, I don't. It's going on for sixty year that I have been in this family, and I never had any fears for it before. But it's breaking up, my dear. The great old deadlock family is breaking up. I hope not, mother. I'm thankful I've lived long enough to be with Sir Leicester and this illness and trouble, for I know I'm not too old nor too useless to be a welcomer sight to him than anybody else in my place would be. But the step on the ghost's walk will walk my lady down, George. It has been many a day behind her, and now it will pass her and go on. Well, mother dear, I say again, I hope not. Ah, so do I, George, the old lady returns, shaking her head, and page 737, parting her folded hands. But if my fears come true and he has to know it, who will tell him? Are these her rooms? These are my lady's rooms, just as she left them. And on and on, and there's, you know, Miss George starts to kind of explain, oh, you know, she's going to be right back, blah, blah, blah. And then Mrs. Rouncewell just says, she, yeah, she's not coming back. And that was just kind of the beginning of the end for me. Also just so devastating. Um, and Mrs. Rouncewell, of course, knows the situation so well. And she's been kind of a, I mean, she was the catalyst for this, wasn't she? In some ways. Sir, Le Sir Leicester, I almost said Sir Lady Deadlock. Sir Leicester Deadlock eventually reunites with George um, Mrs. Rouncewell's sons, of course, he's a favorite. Like, he's just, like, unanimously a favorite, not only with Mrs. Rouncewell herself, uh, who has a favorite of her two sons, and, but also with Sir Leicester Dudlock. He really liked him as a boy, and kind of, they revisit that youthful time together, which is healing for them both. And, Sir Leicester Deadlock in that time, Volumnia is there, Mrs. Rouncewell is there, he reconfirms that Lady Deadlock has done nothing to arouse suspicion in him, to make him doubt her, anything like that, and he's literally, he's just, he just has empathy for her, and that's something that I think is so profound in this last season of not only Lady Deadlock's life, but sort of what we are getting substantially from Sir Leicester Dudlock is this beautiful bout of forgiveness and overwhelming love that he has. Uh, this chapter is kind of, I don't want to say gruesome, that's not the right word, but it's so long in some ways because the night passes just slowly, like paragraph by paragraph, and it's 12 a.m. and then Sir Leicester Dudlock is put to bed in, for, in earnest for the first time, and then we follow Volumnia for a while as she's walking about the rooms, especially Lady Deadlock's rooms, and eventually she goes down peacefully at 4 a.m. So <laughs> we, we really like spend the whole night just like wandering the Deadlock's London house, which is fine, honestly, but yeah, a little bit cumbersome, and it definitely contributes to this again, no pun intended, bleak mood that we're foraging here in the last few serials. Alright, last chapter for today, chapter 59, Esther's Narrative. So, the snow thickens, the horses uh, that Esther and Mr. Bucket are using start to falter, and they do make it to London, though, and they start just essentially walking, and they're walking to Chancery Lane, 
and Woodcourt, really after, like, right after they get out of the carriage, Woodcourt is there. He sees them, he finds them, he goes, Esther! And they, you know, she introduces Woodcourt to Bucket. Woodcourt accompanies them to Mr. Snagsby's, the law stationers, of course. And we find out that Guster, for some reason, has been crying all night. So Guster was put, reprimanded, put in her place by Mrs. Snagsby at some point in the night because she was helping out Lady Deadlock. And Mrs. Snagsby, of course, thinks that every lady who goes near their premises as having an affair with Mr. Snagsby, which is ludicrous. So Mr. Bucket, thankfully, just this scene was amazing. This is one of the most like relief altering points of the book for me. Mr. Bucket finally puts Mrs. Snagsby in her place. Oh my goodness. I've been waiting for this moment. You guys remember a couple serials ago, a couple like episodes or Bleak House weeks ago, I was like, yes, and they're finally going to talk it out, and they're finally going to work it out, and then they never did. They get interrupted because of all the crook nonsense, and here, finally, Bucket puts her in her place and says, look, lady, you're just jealous. None of this is real, and then he explains sort of the situation that they're all in with Lady Deadlock, etc. So they do end up calming Guster down and they procure these notes that Lady Deadlock wrote and they're very bleak. I'm not going to read them here. Lady Deadlock evidently got lost on the way to the graveyard where Nemo slash Captain Hawden was buried and she entreated Guster for help and Guster did lead her to the cemetery. There's this kind of like feverish tone and this is the mood shift that I wanted to talk about. There's just like feverish mood that has taken up this last section and it's kind of like the ending of Anna Karenina if you've ever read Anna Karenina a little bit like the fever that that Dostoevsky paints in Raskolnikov in the beginning of Crime and Punishment and then it just kind of like continues into Raskolnikov's illness it's it is sort of like a Russian I don't want to say drama but you know Russian fiction kind of ending. There's just lots of, yeah, the only word I could think of to describe it was fever. And it's just like this thick drum throughout the last few serials, which is just so interesting and so compelling as well. So we find out that Lady Deadlock and Jenny change clothes along the way and they come across Lady Deadlock's body and she's found dead at the edge of the cemetery gates. And that is the end of this chapter. Alright, we ended on kind of a sad note, so apologies for that. But we'll be back later this week with the rest, the literal last pages of Bleak House. I'm so excited to work through the rest of the book with y'all. Thank you for hanging in with us as we've done this series. It's been so, so much fun, as I said. I'm super grateful for all of you who've been reading along or those of you who've just been listening along. That's just as fun in my opinion. (laughs) So thank you and we'll see you later this week.
If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.